Cora, Richard, Richard, Paul, though it's all the same shit. I'm black, even though my skin's kinda light. That means my ancestors was raped by somebody white. I'm black, so I like the same dance and crack jokes. Eat good food and be around black. I'm black, so I like the oldies on Sundays. Drink all night and still go to work Monday. I'm black, so I like my kids looking real nice. Cause I've been poor and I know what it feels like. I'm black. Welcome I'm to say my blackest transnational. I'm black. I mean, it only it's only right to play that as we kick off Black History Month. Um, welcome to my Blackest Transnational. My name is Dr. Kalaji Ebay Lamberts. And this is yet another episode, but this is a special episode because it's going to be our first episode of my Blackest Transnational kicking off Black History Month. Um, just get the formalities out the way. Please make sure if this is your first time listening to My Black is Transnational to subscribe this podcast, um, rate and review it. It's available on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, um, YouTube, Spotify, you know, we're trying to be everywhere. Also, you can follow me on Instagram at blacktransnational underscore Finally got an email address. That's not my personal email address. I finally got one for the podcast since we're actually, you know, doing big things now, right? Um, it's blacktransnational17 at gmail.com. So you can email me there. Any thoughts, opinions, insults, whatever feedback you have about the show, um, please feel free to share. Um, but today's episode, we're having another guest. Um, I told you and I made this promise at the beginning of the show that we were going to have different guests who are in different professions uh, talk about their experiences being black, whether it's from academic or your personal experiences. So today our guest is Dr. Bryce Henson. And this interview with Dr. Bryce Henson, first I have to give some, some background. Dr. Bryce Henson is a visiting professor currently at the University of Florida and he teaches and does research in black culture and media, um, cultural studies, black feminism, transnational um, blackness. And um, Bryce and I go back all the way to U of I. Um, and even when I was in University of Florida as a postdoc, um, really good friend of mine, hails from Seattle, from Washington, I should say, um, all the way in the West Coast. And this conversation that we have is a very, very deep intellectual conversation um, and this is very much so um, a an overall surmising of what it is to talk about blackness in not just America but across the globe. He does a lot of work as far as um, in Brazil, black um, black hip hop culture in Brazil. Um, he's also working on other things as far as just um, black media across the world. So uh, this conversation again, like I said, is going to be very complicated. We talk about various um, topics and we try to unpack different things that allude to being black, not just um, in North America, but also um, on a global scale. Um, so please, if you have any thoughts, any, you know, any feelings, any reactions towards the conversation that we have, please feel free to send me an email or send me some feedback um, on Instagram or, you know, whatever platform you can access me. I'm very excited to share this content, this conversation with you, and I um, hope you all understand and you all appreciate and take some um, something resonates with you. Uh, so without any further ado, here we go. All right. Today on My Black is Transnational, we have our guest here, Dr. Bryce Henson. Welcome to the show, brother. Um, Long overdue. I'm very excited to have you on here. I know that um, what you're working on is, is tremendous, and uh, a lot of people are going to be fascinated by what you have to say. So just thanks for joining us, man. Hey, appreciate it. Happy to be here, man. Definitely, definitely long overdue, man. Yes. So can you just tell us a little bit about some of the work that uh, you, your, your background, what you've been working on, and uh, what you're currently working on right now? Yeah, so... Um... So I'm a black cultural studies scholar. So I'm always interested in black culture. Um, and kind of for me, kind of the main thing is how do people, how do black people use black culture as kind of like a side of critique um, and as a form of politics, especially when we think about how we're disenfranchised in other ways. Um, and particularly my work, um, I have a particular focus thinking about um, 
so thinking about blackness in a diasporic and a transnational way, but also thinking about uh, kind of where like the silences and erasures. So like, what do we don't see? Um, and this actually really comes into my training. Um, so I'm trained in communications and media with a focus in cultural studies. Uh, so kind of one of my questions is always, you know, why are certain things visible and then why are other things invisible? And for me, invisibility is not necessarily about being absent, but it's like, why is it not registering um, as far as what we might conceive as um, being associated with Black people or Black culture? And then kind of how can we think about that being a dynamic place for critique or even, um, you know, representation and understanding of kind of like the heterogeneity of Blackness? How can we think about that as a way that um, not only challenges kind of society, but also even within the diaspora itself. Um, it's like, you know, again, and I think we'll get this a little bit more when we talk about my research, um, but like how we don't see certain black people, we don't hear about certain black experiences or certain black cultures. Uh, so right now I'm doing a, a research project on uh, Brazilian hip hop in Northeast uh, Brazil. Um, this is called Salvador uh, da Bahia. Um, and so for folks who don't know about, uh, much about Brazil or Salvador, uh, Salvador is considered to be part of the African part of Brazil. So it's in the Northeast oh. functions very similar to like the U S South. It was the center of colonialism, uh, slavery, uh, the vast majority of enslaved Africans who arrived came to there. Um, although not exclusively there, they kind of all over the coast. Um, but today, you know, when people think about Salvador technically or Bahia, they think about, um, kind of this idea of like pre-modern African cultures. So it's this place where, um, you know, black people there have actually kept their African heritage and culture and roots, um, which is true. Um, it's also kind of a, um, it's kind of like, a, uh, uh, like some size, it's like some shade towards the United States, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that black people in the United States have not maintained our culture um, and our history, which isn't true. Um, it's just it comes up in different ways. Um, so all I have to say, there's kind of like this romantic, there was kind of being this this beacon of like African cultures because black people have access to the culture. Like everything's all gravy. Like there's no, there's no racism because, you know, people have, because uh, there's a lot of self-esteem and pride in being black. But it's like a particular, particular kind of black. Uh, what people don't think about is the hip hop movement there. And that's kind of where I come in. Um, and so a lot of this stuff, around um, Afro-Brazilian culture in Salvador is centered in very touristy zones. Uh, so places that are considered safe by the state. Um, you know, so a lot of tourists are going there. A lot of, um, a lot of transactions happening um, as far as, uh, you know, souvenirs or goods or some kind of experience or excursion. My thing is, you know, what about black people who live in the hood? So for there, it's the favelas, right? So what kind of cultures are meaningful for them and what are they doing with black culture? And then also, how can we think about that as black people forming um, kind of community uh, cultural identities that aren't dependent upon um, kind of legitimation by the nation as well. Right. So these are kind of like, they're kind of going outside the boundaries of what's considered to be um, traditional or proper uh, Afro-Brazilian culture. And so my work is, um, you know, I, um, I kind of depict, you know, what their lives are like, um, how is it kind of, uh, beers outside the mainstream. <clears throat> and then also, you know, what are the kinds of representations they put in their graffiti and their rap music? And, right, and how does that make us change not only how we understand about Brazil, but also about the diaspora itself, like what connects us and what binds us? Uh, so that's probably a little bit, lo- little bit long of an answer, but that's kind of the gist of, uh, of my work, my current research project now. Man, that's fascinating. And I think some things that you touched on are very um, intriguing to me, especially when you talk about Salvador. Is it El Salvador or just Salvador? just want to make sure I'm saying it right. Uh, just Salvador. In Salvador, just and Salvador. you said that they sustain their their culture, their heritage over there in contrast to the Black Americans here in the United States where they don't have that despite saying that they've kind of gone through similar experiences. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Like, why? How did that occur? I'm, I'm curious. What, 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 what do you... Um, think about that yeah so so part of it is um i mean there's a couple things going on here one there's just um there's a different kind of colonialism right so when um the british came to the united states they came there's a form of settler colonialism by that they came to stay right they're trying to set up another kind of european colony where white people could go and live permanently 
in Brazil, people weren't trying to stay permanently. They were there to extract resources and put it into the transatlantic trade, right? And part of that, the trade was also the trafficking of black bodies. So part of that is um, Brazil just also brought in 10 times more enslaved Africans than the United States did. So United States, historians roughly agree upon the United States, about 300 to 500,000 um, Africans were forcibly brought to the United States. In Brazil, that number is three to five million. Wow. So if you want to put that in the larger context of um, the entire transatlantic slave trade, Brazil received between one-fourth and one-third. So that has a variety of um, impacts on how black people practice culture. Um, so within Salvador, I'm going to get to the United States because I think it's also important to push back against narratives. Um, so in, in Salvador, um, so actually these these Afro, well, these African-derived cultures, and normally this is actually like Yoruba, Igbo, Nako, mm-hmm. uh, very West African. So I think it's kind of important to, to flesh that out because so often, you know, when we talk about Africa, it's like, well, what part or what nation or what, you know, ethnicity, whatnot. Um, so they maintained it because, one, they had a lot of numbers, but two, actually what they did was they syncretized a lot of their African gods with Catholic saints. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you'd be like, all right, this saint here is, you know, someone who protects people. So we're going to match him up with the god of uh, of war. Um, and so the way that um, uh, enslaved Africans in Brazil, that's how they kind of maintain their cultures. But also they had a lot of uh, maroon communities, right? These fugitive slave communities where they could go back and practice their um you know, their, their cultural traditions and histories. Um, and actually for a long time, they were really repressed. It really wasn't until like the early 20th century that it was okay for some of them to be practiced openly, like such as Samba, Capoeira, um, and then kind of more recently, more like Condomble, which is a Yoruba derived uh, religion, which is very similar to like Santeria or like Bodum. Um, and so it just, it has a different history, but also different groups in different contexts. Um, also, I think on the flip side, in the United States, people think black people don't have culture, right? Or don't have African cultures. And that's actually simply not wrong. And that's simply not right. Um, so part of this, right, is the, the, um, being forced to convert to Christianity. Right. Um, and, you know, so one thing that, um, like, I think so often we're, we're obsessed with aesthetics and how things look. Um, and we're not actually concerned about form um, or structures. And by that, what we mean is, uh, for example, we know the difference between a black church and a white church, right? Um, you know, the preacher says something, the, the, the crowd speaks back, amen, right? That's mm-hmm. that's called response. That's a very West African thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. It's about repetition and difference um, and speaking back, right, and kind of having a dialogue. Um, so things like that. Even if we talk about African vernacular, uh, African-American vernacular English, there's a great mm-hmm. book. It's It's fundamental. It's called Talking and Testifying by Geneva Smitherman. She's brilliant. She's the founder of Black Social Linguistics. She's up in Detroit, been teaching at Michigan State for many, many years. Um, so when she writes this book in 1977, what she says is, when Black people came, were forcibly brought to the United States, what they did was, um, you know, keep in mind, right, slaves were not being taught English, right, at least not properly, right? They mm-hmm. developed just enough to kind of communicate with um, slave owners and who, whoever it may be. But many times what they did was they took um, African meanings and, and structures and replaced it with English words, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is why people think, um, like, for example, we call it Ebonics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we think that it's improper English. Like, no, actually, it's a very Africanized way of speaking English, right? And so there's various ways that we keep um, our cultural histories and traditions. Um, they just don't always appear to be that way. Um, and if you think about, you know, I'm going to, Bring a much more contempor- uh, contemporary example, right? If we think about hip hop, right, mm-hmm. and that being sampling, right? Sampling is a very um, after diasporic philosophy of culture as well, right? It's taking something old and making it something new, right? Right, and so um, you know, hip hop was big on that. Even you think about jazz, this, this notion of interpretation, or even at the cut or the break, like let's come back to that, right? We can see that soul with like James Brown. Um, it's like, you know what, let's, let's do this B version of it, or let's do an acoustic version, or let's do a club version, right? These are all kind of very Afro, like these are philosophical notions of West African cultures that come out 
and how U.S. African Americans um, express culture. So um, people would kind of say, like, well, you know, how come Brazil kept their culture and the United States didn't? It's like, well, black people just didn't lose culture here, right? It came out in many different ways. And those are just kind of a few examples of, of how those happened here. So, Man, so, you know, you brought something that was very, very interesting. And I want to touch on that really quickly because it kind of speaks to my experience recently when um, my wife and I went to Nigeria. And in conversation with some of our family members, they were saying something along the lines of, just this is just to kind of touch on the perception of how they view African Americans, and they were talking about how mm-hmm. they 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 had this fear or this concern that because of how long I've been in America and how acculturated they believed I was to the United States, they had this fear that I was going to come back and I was going to have you know they they called dreads fried hair, um, you know coming mm-hmm. with fried hair and baggy clothes, and I was going to look like one of those. In Nigeria, we call them Akata people, which are essentially the, the unfortunately derogatory term for African Americans. And I wonder if the, the media plays a role because they're going, they have this mindset of how black people in the U.S. are and it's considered improper. And and it's a hip-hop culture too because all that, you know, that concept that people um, affiliate with hip-hop is also associated with negativity. And why is that? If we're talking about media, I really want... To see if you you know you can kind of enlighten us about that, right? Which is the funny thing about um, what you're saying is that um, you know it's not just even with the continent, right? It's about how we understand blackness globally, and there's something about U.S. blackness that's both exceptional um, and also stigmatized. Mm. Um, you know, so U.S. blackness can be very empowering. Um, you know, if you want to think about um, like the Black Power movement or even hip hop, right? But it's also this fear that like, oh, there's something bad about that. So I think there's a couple of things. One, just U.S. African Americans are in the United States. If we think about how much media power the United States has to send images all around the world, that really influences how the rest of the world, um, black people and non-black people, think about U.S. African Americans. Um, the other thing, too, though, about that is that, um, you know, a lot of times we see in the diaspora, right, and even in Brazil, we try to create, impose our own hierarchies um, of what's, like, authentically black, um, right? So, you know, we can even practice racism amongst ourselves, right, particularly among notions of, like, ethnicity, Um so, for example, when people talk about like um, <clears throat> like U.S. African Americans, like oh, you know, that's those aren't the good black people. Those, you know, they're um, you know they're poor, they're lazy, right? And so, a lot of times, though, they produce these notions of black people um, kind of being less than or inferior within the United States, right? right? right. Um, but on the flip side, we do that in different ways too here in the United States, right? Uh, we still have very uh, racist ideas of, of people still living on the continent, um, or even people from, like, for example, Haiti, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of these ways that, you know, even we internalize some of these anti-Black sentiments about each other, right? And they're kind of always, com- not competing, but there's many of them out there, so we can justify our fear of other Black people, particularly those um, who aren't who aren't um, familiar. And I think the interesting thing about that is what the conversation that comes out of that is that we're actually not all unified. Like it's not a natural thing that all people are just in solidarity with one another. So we don't have like some natural form of solidarity. We have to think about what does bind us. Right. So often it's about culture or identity or roots. Right. And so part of, I think, um, what I would think about, you know, for um, people back on the continent, right. is being this idea that black people in the United States have lost their way. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's very complicated, um, right? And I think also people just don't want to be associated with U.S. blackness in many ways. I mean, yeah. here in Florida, I have many students from the Caribbean, which I think is fantastic. And, you know, they'll tell me, like, you know, I'm not, uh, they're like, I'm not black, I'm not African-American, uh, you know, I'm Haitian or I'm Jamaican or like what have you. I'm like, yeah, yeah that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. Uh, but you get pulled over by the police, you know, you're black, right? right. And they just kind of look at me like, you mean true, true. So, <laughs> um, you know, there's all these kind of different things that um, that are contradictory that I think are really good actually for having a larger kind of dialogue about the kind of what binds us and how blackness travels, particularly transnationally, right? Cause it doesn't always translate perfectly. Um, and actually, I think that's like a great example of how these things don't translate that well sometimes. Now, do you think there's, you know, I think you talked about that disassociation that a lot of black immigrants have um, from 
you know, Native Black Americans. But do you think there's solidarity present in those respective Black immigrant communities, or do you think they also have their own forms of disassociating themselves within, you know, their own particular population? Is that just a, is that a Black thing, or just people, or just a, a human being thing that people just tend to always find ways to essentialize themselves? Like, I just find that to be interesting. Well, you know, some people wonder, like, so admittedly, this is not part of my um, area of expertise, but part of it, I said, I think is about immigration, right? Like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be an immigrant and to voluntarily come into the United States, right? Like, you're entering into the United States in a very different way than many other Black people who are forcibly brought here, right? Right. Um, and I think another thing that comes up with that is, what kind of immigrant are you, mm-hmm. um, right? Are you... Um, are you a refugee? Are you an upper class? Um, like, are you some kind of elite from your country? Mm-hmm. Are you upper middle class? Did you come over here when you were younger? Did you come here for college? Did you come here for a job? Um, and I think sometimes, and this is actually a, a larger story about immigration, you can even take it back to um, like Italians and Jews and, and, um, and various Asians, right? The way, one way you can assimilate within the United States is to uh, more or less crap on black people, right? Um, you can say, well, you know, we may be X, Y, Z, but at least we're not black, yeah. right? At, a bit, at the very least, you know, so you kind of go from this binary system of white, black to mm-hmm. kind of this ladder, right? Yeah. And you're saying, like, yo, I may not be white, but I'm definitely not black. Or, I'm not U.S. black. You know, I'm this other kind of black that's better than U.S. black. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's kind of this juxtaposition of trying to differentiate yourself from who we think is the bad black people, um, the unfortunate thing is then all of a sudden we, you know, some people find out like, oh, you know, um, a lot of people in society don't make that distinction between who we think are or how people might want to differentiate themselves between good black and bad black people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you even see that, you know, within the U S black population, right. People whose families have been here for centuries, right. Um, people who want to be, um, very middle-class or very respectable, right. It's a way we all try to distance ourselves, um, from, you know, the what we think black people aren't ordinarily like, right? We ourselves want to be exceptional. Uh, and so I think oftentimes we want to be exceptions rather than actually choosing what the rule itself is. And I think there's a variety of ways in which people kind of play with that. Um, but you know, I think African immigrants aren't immune to that, right? Um, especially in the United States, and depending on what their experiences are, how long they've been here, um, you know, they can have... Um, you know, even contradictory views of black people. But again, you know, U.S. black people can have very racist views of black people itself, right? Like, what Zora Hurston tell us? All my skin folk ain't kin folk, right? Um, yeah, so, you know, um, these are kind of the issues that are being uh, fleshed out, I think, um, within these kind of diasporic relationships and interactions. So we'll shift gears a little bit and, and talk about your experience, your personal experience, but also your, your research experience in Brazil, because I really want to know about just the day-to-day experiences. Um, in my opinion, I want you to clarify, because in my opinion, I consider you a transnational, because I feel like you have a very strong connection with Brazil, um, and you're still very much so, you know, settled here in the U.S., but I want to know, as far as blackness and all the things that we just discussed here um, related to blackness, what does that blackness look like in Brazil, and what's your experience been personally and also research-wise? Right. So the funny thing about Brazil is that um, how you define race depends on how you experience blackness in Brazil or how you want to think about it. So, for example, um, a lot of times Brazil tries to act like uh, nation is a is synonymous with race, right? So the larger the larger narrative is that Brazil is a racial democracy because everyone's mixed, therefore no one can be racist against themselves, um, and that everyone's happy and there's no racial discrimination there. Um, it kind of has evidence of this. You'll see certain Afro-Brazilian cultures that are like national symbols. So the national dish is. Um, this uh, Afro-Brazilian bean stew called feijoada, or, um, you know, the official music is, you know, samba, which is Afro-Brazilian. Um, so you see things like that. Um, a lot of times also you'll see it as kind of like as ethnicity, right? just kind of um, a set of uh, meanings or beliefs or cultural practices. Mm-hmm. And this is where Afro-Bayan culture come back in, uh, like Salvador, right? 
So it's like, well, you know, African people have been, or African descendant people have been access to their cultures. Um, and so for me, I would think about what are like kind of the material realities, material conditions and the social realities of black people, right? Because uh, my thing is, I kind of think I, I was kind of keep coming back to is that, um, you know, you don't have to have access to say traditional African culture to know you're black, right? Um, the police will tell you, uh, your teachers will tell you, um, the shop, the person who's working at the store will tell you, the security guard at the mall will tell you, right? Um, so what happens when we start with that is our point of race as um, kind of embedded in set, a set of um, social political structures, right? That kind of determine like where you can live, how much education you can get, what kind of health care can you have, um, you know, what kind of like what kinds of access to citizenships you have. Um, so again, that's why I work with the Brazilian hip hop movement. Um, who are very politically motivated, minded, um, who are activists, many of them who are militants. Um, and so Brazil is a very contradictory place because it wants to act like it has included people into the nation and it doesn't have racial problems like the United States. But at the same time, it's a very anti-black nation. Um, wow. So kind of um, the most appalling statistic is, um, I think 2016, there were 66,000 homicides. And of those, two-thirds were, uh, of the victims were black people. And so people, many of scholars, particularly in kind of what we call the critical black Brazilian studies, are saying, you know, Brazil is a genocidal state who's really determined on killing black people. And this comes out in two ways. One is the military police um, who kind of have, kind of their motto is to boot first and, and ask questions later. And actually, um, a few years ago, there was a, a, a massacre in one of the favelas. Um, by the military police that killed 12 um, black male youth. And the mayor applauded the police. He, he, he made a, an analogy that was beautiful, like wow. uh, a striker in, in football, international football, of course. Sorry, American, U.S. folks. Um, he's like, it was like a, a striker in football scoring a goal. It's beautiful, right? But we're talking about 12 black male youth who just mm. lost their lives that night, right? And the families who have to kind of live in that wake. Um you know, you see things where, um, you know, even hire, like hiring preferences, uh, you know, um, it used to be places will put a sign out said only good parents need apply. And that would mean the lighter you are, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to a bank and you would see the security guard would be very dark skinned. The teller might be mixed or, you know, a little more fair skinned. And then the manager would be like white, white. Um, and so kind of, you know, that's, so that's kind of with my starting point, how we think about race, um, like kind of socially and politically. And then kind of how does culture emerge out of that to express those, especially when Brazil doesn't want to talk about that, right? Because it challenges its idea that it's this racial democracy. Uh, for me, myself, um, I got interested in Brazil actually as an undergrad. Um, so for me, I was majoring um, in communication. I was thinking about um, race and culture and representation and race relations and um you know like as a multiracial black man i'm thinking about like you know what is this um like u.s can't be the only place that's dealing with these issues it's people like we should think about brazil because they're everyone's mix and that's how they thought uh race relations and i was like mm. there are people like it was a great place to part i'm not gonna lie like you know that was part of the draw and so i studied abroad there as an undergrad um and you know i had a great time but um, kind of my thing too was, you know, everyone's trying to feed you the Kool-Aid, right? It's like, oh, you know, Brazil's so big, da 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 da. It's like, oh, you look where black people live. It's like, it's in the favelas. Like, look who's getting messed with by the police. You know, it's black folks. Um, and no one's really, t- like, I had one professor who was talking about that, but another one would. So it's kind of these odd things. And then when I was in Salvador, again, right, we're seeing all these great African cultures. And at the same time, we're being told, you know, don't go out after five, be home by nine, be careful. It's a very dangerous city. You might get robbed, raped, or killed. Like she was literally saying these things to us. Um, and this is actually a program for students of color, actually. And we're all like, this is kind of whack. Like, we know you want to say that you're scared of black people, particularly the ones that aren't these great, you know, performing all these Afro-Brazilian cultures for you. Um, but she kind of knew better, right? But like for a lot of us, we could see right through it. Mm. Um, and so the funny thing for me was, and this kind of, it's funny to think about how long ago it was, but how it kind of shaped my research was, you know, I kind of got sick of the program at a certain point. And, um, I was on this boardwalk in, in Salvador and I hear, I hear rap music and it was, 
it was something where you hear something familiar in a place that's strange and you're like, wait, hold up, like this shouldn't be here. But there's also kind of a touristy areas where we were staying. I was like, you know, it's probably just like Western tourists. Um, I get there and like, we finally come around the alley and it's a bunch of like poor working class black youth uh, waiting to go into this club <clears throat> for a hip hop concert. You can see the performer, he's kind of out on the side by the side door, bring over his lineup uh, with the manager. I was like, man, don't nobody ever talk about this in Brazil, right? Especially not here in Salvador. So that's kind of what got me thinking about um, these issues of um, of kind of silences and, and, and blackness and how it circulates transnationally. Uh, and so that's kind of where I picked up on my research. Um, personally, you know, my research is very much, um, you know, seeing kind of how blackness is lived in ways that operate outside the nation, right? It doesn't see black people as, um, you know, kind of happy bodies who are part of this, you know, tropical utopia in South America. Um, so, you know, I spend um, a lot of time out with fellas, you know. Um, I mean, one thing I see me and a lot of people I work with, especially rappers, we just watch YouTube videos a lot, right? Yeah. But we talk about it, like, hip-hop becomes a way to talk about, right, it's kind of like these... Uh, um, what I call like street philosophy, right? Um, you know, we'll watch something from Brazil and or the United States, and you know, we're like, oh, you know, how does this pertain here? We'll tell our own stories, um, things like that. So I kind of operate kind of on the margins of um, of Salvador, where a lot of like tourists wouldn't go. Um, and it's funny because people, you know, ask me like, well, isn't it dangerous out there? I'm like, I don't ever really feel. I mean, yeah, sure. Like I know favelas have a bad reputation and all, and. Um, you know, you kind of have to watch yourself, but at the same time, like you could be, like, you're probably more likely to get robbed in a tourist area than you are in a favela. Um, and so, you know, my experience has been very much, um, been multifaceted. I mean, I've had, um, you know, I've been robbed by the police in, in Rio. That was a while ago. Um, you know, there's, um, you know, so Brazil can be a very kind of tough place at times to be, uh, especially for me. Um, and for me, you know, like, because I'm mixed and I'm multiracially black, kind of like in this, like, in-between brown stage where some people, you know, they'll tell me to my face, like, oh, you know, you fit right in, like, you're part of this great place, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, you know, like, security guards will follow me in the mall. Um, or if I'm walking down the stairs and, like, some white woman is in the building, she doesn't see me, like, she'll gasp and, like, you know, to her purse and stuff like that. Um, so very things like that. So it's a very, so as much as I love Brazil, I also have issues with it, but also the people I work with have been, have been like very great as far as, um, embracing the research I'm doing. I've been very supportive of it. I'm trying to get what they're doing circulating in other places. Um, so yeah, that's kind of been my personal and my research experiences and kind of navigating how blackness kind of flows out of Brazil. Wow, man, that was rich. Um, and and then it just kind of la- leads me to ask. Uh, one of the big things for me is that I would like to be able to encourage more Black people in the U.S., Africans or not, um, to be more global-minded. And based on your experience as far as connecting with Brazil and, and building that transnational relationship, what do you say to your fellow brothers and sisters here? who may or may not be um, reluctant to traveling and making a connection with other nations outside of the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think we, for me, one thing I was realizing was that we can be, in the United States, we can be very very narrow-minded and um, about how we define what blackness is or black culture, and that influences how we go other places and want to see and consume it and interact with other black people. Um, and so I think that's a very important thing as far as, um, you know, kind of pulling that back and understanding my thing, I guess would say that when you go to another country and you want to engage with black people from another country, think about critically, like what images are being presented to you and why? Um, and that's not always an easy question to answer right away. Um, but again, for me, for Brazil, right. Um, and many of us, right. We think about Brazil, uh, think of carnival, scantily clad black women, uh, we think about samba, we think about parties on the beach, right? It's like this very happy tropical paradise, right? Yeah. Um, and so what what does that image kind of do in terms of how we perceive Brazil, right? Uh-huh. Um, or even in Salvador, right? Again, it's, it's in many ways kind of thought of as a pre-modern African city. 
And a lot of people want to go there because it's like, oh, I've lost my roots. I want to go there to recover that. And I don't even have to go to Africa. I can go to Salvador and I can get that there, right? Um, but it's also, you know, this is also part of a large tourism industry there. Um, so what what are we kind of missing by these images that circulate globally um, and kind of what's behind that? And again, it's not an easy thing to figure out. Uh, but one thing I appreciated was doing a study abroad. And even though I had issues with it, it gave me kind of a more sustained time um, to kind of meet locals and stuff. Um, actually, I know in Brazil there's a rise of kind of local um, tour agencies by um, black Brazilians. And I think those are like another way to talk with people uh, kind of beyond the bigger tourist agencies or even the, the state might have certain ones because they want to portray a certain image. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to understand, you know, what's going on in the diaspora is just as important as going on in, in the United States, right? When we talk about Black Lives Matter here in the United States, um, but I don't think we can actually comprehend the proportions of Black death going on elsewhere, right? In Brazil uh, or, or another, many other places. Um, and so I think, you know, when you really just kind of take off our U.S.-centric blinder selves sometimes, um, and, you know, and especially, you know, actually I think another important thing is be multilingual. You know, it, there's also certain linguistic boundaries that we're we're dealing with. So for me, you know, I learned Portuguese when I got to grad school. Um, you know, but I mean, think about how many black people across the world speak Portuguese, right? It's not just in Brazil, but also in Africa, right? Angola, Mozambique. Um, think about how many Spanish-speaking black people there are, right? Throughout Latin America and whatnot. Um, and same thing with French, right? So there's even like linguistic barriers. So I think there's a variety of things that um, we can do to better understand and engage Black folk across the globe. Man, yeah, yeah, I agree a, a million percent. And now, in regards to just and that's not sorry, my bad. And that's not to mention those are the colonial languages. Right. You can learn, you know, some of the more, um, you know, like languages from the continent. That's even better. But I mean, unfortunately, a lot of us are speaking in colonial languages, myself yeah. included. And, so. and I'm glad you brought that up because there are two things, and, and I guess I'll lead off with this question, then I'll kind of wrap up with this final question, um, but. One of the things that's interesting to me that I learned, um, and not necessarily a young age, but as I was an undergrad, was as a Nigerian, knowing that we represent different ethnic backgrounds such as Yoruba, Igbo, I didn't understand that there were tons of Yorubas in Brazil. And I was just like, how? Why is that? Because, you know, from what you learn about slavery and the transatlantic, you know, slave trade, you just kind of thought, yeah, it was, you know, the history books obviously are misleading, but still, you just thought it was the United States, you know, then Africa and back, and where do these Yorubas come from? Like, where, why are they in Brazil? And so a lot of Nigerians sometimes lose track of the fact that you have people who speak a similar language but are in, you know, but are mixing it up with Brazil. And and some of them are even in Cuba, you know, especially when you talk about the religion, you know, the African religions that are still very present and being practiced by people in these areas. And I wanted to know your thoughts about that. I'm glad you brought, you brought that up, actually, right? Because so often when we think about, like, say, the African diaspora, is that there's actually, like, many diasporas within that. Because, and there's actually a, a thing I always tell my students, too, is that, um, you know, at some point, someone brings up the fact that, um, you know, that Africans should also be responsible for the transatlantic slave trade for selling their fellow Africans into slavery. <clears throat> and I hear that, but... I'm like, but black people didn't know they were selling fellow black people, right? Mm -hmm. These were actually foreigners to them, right? These were strangers. They didn't consider themselves to have any kind of kinship. There's no notion of like a racial bond amongst themselves, right? These are different ethnicities or tribes or villages. Uh, so all that to say, right, one of the, one of these ethnicities, one of these, these nations, and not like the nation state, but like the, the kind of way colonialism has drawn out um, these kind of uh, artificial nation-state boundaries, but, like, these nations, right, the Yoruba consider themselves to be a nation, um, right, many of them got sent to across the Americas, and uh, a large majority, uh, I don't know about majority, but a large amount went to Brazil, particularly the Northeast, um, but they went to Cuba. Um, and so one thing people were doing, trying to maintain or find ways to keep practicing their individual cultural practices. Um, and so this is how you get condemned Now, But you also have um, you know, Yoruba uh, religious and cultural practices being influenced by, say, for example, the Nato, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you still see very much Europe influences today in Brazil, even the way people speak, um, kind of cultural practices. Like, Candomblé has um, kind of like a huge influence on Brazil, on, on Salvador still to this day. The interesting thing I want to bring up to you is this great book called Black Atlantic Religion by J. Loran Matori. It's uh, a little bit older now, I think 2005. But he talks about actually black Brazilians who are part of like the Yoruba diaspora going back to uh, Africa and to the Lagos hinterlands Mm. in the 19th century. And you actually see that black Brazilians in Brazil and Bahia were influencing your religions back in the, in the, in the motherland. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually this Afro-Atlantic, there's kind of like these countercurrents, right? Cause we're not speaking about, right. Almost like this reverse migration, um, Right, they're going back to Brazil. Or I'm sorry, they're going back to Africa and engaging with people back on the homeland <clears throat> and actually influencing what's considered to be Yoruba uh, back there, right? And they're actually going with other people who do Santeria, I believe people from um, Trinidad, maybe, but at least Brazil and Cuba. Um, and so even within that, right, this is kind of Yoruba <clears throat> diaspora within the African diaspora, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of keep being connected. And so, you know, we bring up that point, right? But that also brings up the point that, you know, these are the various ethnicities and tribes and nations that people were dealing with. Um, you know, they're coming from, and when they're in the in the Americas, they're trying to find ways to keep practicing their culture. Because they don't just, you I mean, people just don't lose their culture, right? Mm. Uh, the way you're born and raised and whatnot. Even when, you, when you're forced onto these ships, you still found a way, you know, you still, you still keep, you believe certain set of belief systems, you practice them. Um, so they don't just go away. They're not erased from you. Um, but yeah, so probably people went back to Africa. Um, so I think that's really important to think about that, you know, um, black migration, uh, in the 19th century and before it's not between the, um, 16th and 19th century is not synonymous with slavery too. And I think just to kind of center it all, or kind of wrap it up, I think because you kind of talk about black media and that invisibility and that exists and all the content that you're sharing now is a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't really know about it. A lot of people are not aware. Um, you know, it's just something that I think uh, we're all kind of ignorant to, even those who are scholars and this is not necessarily your field of expertise. And when you think about your, your, when you construct your own sense of blackness, you don't really think about how all these things kind of play some type of a role um, in it. And, and it leads me to ask you this question as far as controlling that narrative. What do you think, you know, as an expert in black media and black culture, what do you think is, uh, what do you think black people, black communities can do in order to take better control of the narrative that, or the images that are being portrayed by the media, not just in the United States, but even across the globe as far as blackness is concerned? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, of course, there's never any easy answer, but a couple of things, and this is what I train my students to think about, is that when we see representations of black people, I'm always, you know, I'm always asking them, who's behind the camera? Who's behind the scenes, right? Um, you know, is it a black person producing it? And again, right, on my skin folk ain't kin folk. So just because someone's black doesn't mean it's going to be a good film. Um, but first thing is like, all right, who's producing this, right? So for example, um, you know, a lot of these kind of feel-good movies about white people and, and interracial unity and, and shared struggle, right? A lot of times it's white people behind the, behind the camera, right? Black people are always kind of in charge of redeeming white people. Um, but, you know, also black people can create very damaging representations of black people, too, that can be very profitable, right? You get to be a black face uh, for Hollywood. Uh, but to go to your point, the thing that I always think about is that um, I always get, especially for my students, that students always want positive representations. And I always kind of tell them to hit the brake first. Um, because actually, you know, we've had positive representations. And the best case actually is The Cosby Show. And so, mm. uh, you know, first off, Bill Cosby's trash. <laughs> uh, but even thinking about The Cosby Show, what it was is a very upper middle class black family. Right, you have a doctor and a lawyer for parents. They're married. It's very kind of normative. Um, they have, you know, um, how many kids do they have? Uh, four kids, right? Mm-hmm. 
And it's very respectable, right? This is a positive representation. The, the, the problem with positive representation is that if you don't live up to it, then that justifies you, the, the, the kind of um, um, the things that happen to you or where you're at in life, right? It's like, well, if you just would have been a doctor, you know, like, like Cliff, you'd be fine. You wouldn't be having these problems, right? Um, so things like that. Or, you know, if you acted right or if you didn't do this and this and this. Another thing, too, though, is that not everyone, you know, you can be, quote, unquote, respectable, uh, but people don't always recognize that, right? Um, you know, because so often blackness is synonymous with poverty, right? So people automatically assume, it's like, oh, what was it like growing up in the hood, mm. right? Or, like, was there a lot of gang violence and stuff like that, too, right? So I say all this really to get at the point of, I don't want kind of like this negative versus positive. I want a whole spectrum of black representation and experiences, right? And so actually, I think that's the thing that, like, say, for example, Issa Rae is doing with Insecure, is that she's making blackness very muddy, right? And she's not talking about just black people. She's talking about black women um, and a variety of them, right? Things like that. Um, Donald Glover with Atlanta, same thing, right? Um, you know, you can make critiques about uh, black male nerdum, and I think that's totally fine. Um, but he's also talking about, like, you know, black men who are super hyper-masculine, right? Like, he ain't, you know, he's not, a, he's not, a, he's not like Paperboy, he's not a baller, he's not a thug, right? But he's trying to get in on this money. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, what happens when you don't have, when you don't rely on positive or negative representation is that you get a, a much more um, complex representation of black people that shows a variety of ways in which we can be black, right? Um, and so that kind of gets us out of these stereotypes and controlling images that we often resign ourselves to or we feel like we have to reenact. Um, and the final thing, too, is that um, often so, so many times we want to um, um, ridicule or distance ourselves from people who are represent negative parts of ourselves. And actually, I think that's what's so fascinating about Cardi B, right, is that, you know, a lot of many ways, like, you know, she's ratchet as hell, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think that's a negative representation on the black community, right? Um, although it's important to recognize she's actually Afro-Latina. I think she's, like, Dominican um, or half-Dominican. But anyway, um, but I think it's important to think about, well, how how are people who are who come from poor and working class backgrounds, like how are those black people also valuable, right? What can they teach us? It's like when Cardi B was on Instagram and it's talking about the government shutdown, right? People were real quick to shut up because someone like her from Queens who used to be a stripper and stuff, like, oh, you shouldn't be talking about politics. That ain't your lane, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not how you should be talking. Um, but you know what she was saying was actually like really profound, right? She actually had great analyses. I mean, she has her problem, um, with certain things, right? But, you know, she makes great critiques on a variety of things, but because of who she is, where she's from and what she does and how she talks, people want to just dismiss her, right? Because she doesn't play respectability politics. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of black folks, um, want to get into. So my, and that's actually even goes back to my research, Mike, you know, these people that we don't think are exceptional or respectable, um, or not the, the positive representations, right? Like, what do they have to say about the world? And what happens when we really listen to them instead of trying to represent them like everyone else does to justify um, uh, their kind of oppressive conditions? So, um, so, I mean, I think that's the thing in the media, right? It's always kind of trying to naturalize ideologies. And so, you know, again, right, black people always kind of juxtapose good versus bad, and I really don't like that binary. So what happens when we try to, uh, like, why can't we be, instead of being either or, why can't we be both and, right? Because that's something like white people get to have in the representations, right? And that's what kind of humanizes them and gives them an array of um, uh, experiences and so, you know, kind of measure themselves against. And black people, we don't necessarily always get that or get that kind of vast um, arsenal of representation. So, you know, from a media studies scholar, that's always my thing. <clears throat> I don't want good versus bad, I want more, right? And I want complex ones. That's dope. And I think you just covered, that's a good way to just kind of wrap it up because I think just, it doesn't have to be positive or negative. They just have to be as existential and they just have to, things that truly exist that we see on a daily basis for better, for worse. Um, Man, bro, like that's, you know, we're kind of running out of time, but I just want to take this opportunity again to just thank you so much uh, for taking the time, bro, to just educate us and enlighten us about your research and just being black across, you know, the world and, and other spaces in the world and, and just the permeation of black culture, man, such a deep 
insightful uh, area of research, man. And if there, I know you're working on a couple projects. Do you want to kind of talk about the books that you're working on really quickly, and then you know we just say our piece out? Yeah, so uh, I'm working on two books. One's called The New Spaces of Colonialism, Reading uh, Schools, Museums, and Cities and Globalization. It's a really dope international collaborative with people working all over the world. Um, just kind of seeing how the role of colonialism is actually, um, even though we don't have colonial uh, powers like in Europe, these kind of logics and these structures kind of keep continuing to inform um, kind of, you know, people's worlds, um, socially, culturally, politically. Uh, so I'm keep doing my research on Brazil, people doing work on Turkey, India, Korea, Baltimore, um, things like that. And then again, I'm also working on uh, my single author book called uh, uh, Diaspora Fugitives, Race, Gender, and Brazilian Hip-Hop Cultural Politics. So it's been this research. Um, I've been doing, um, been touching on many of the, the elements that we've been talking about here, but, you know, what kind of the silences and absences in the diaspora, and then what does kind of diaspora look like from that vantage point? Um, how do people articulate um, Black culture from people's um, social material realities? <clears throat> and then also, you know, the one thing I love about the, the hip-hop movement down there is that they're actually really working um, in the rap music videos and even graffiti, right, to reimagine blackness um, in kind of new and transformative ways um, defines, like, you know, just trying to value all black people, um, particularly those who are most derided. Um, so hopefully that'll be out, you know, a couple years or so. So uh, hopefully by then, you know, I'll come back on, we can go a little uh, talk to the authors, you know, review. Yep, yep. And that's exactly what I'm looking forward to, man. Uh very appreciative of your time, brother, man. It's always a pleasure to just talk to you, and I'm wishing you best of luck with everything. We'll definitely keep in touch. Matter of fact, um, one more thing I need to mention is that I definitely need to connect you with a good brother who I'll be having on the show um, in a couple weeks. His name is Dr. Omavi, um, Mavi Bailey, and he does work in Benin, and he does this thing, The Doorway oh, of Return. Yes, he does, he does this thing called The Doorway of Return, and he'll be here to talk on the show as well about what he does, but... And y'all both are really privy to the African um, healing and the spiritual aspect of things. And I really want to get y'all too plugged in. So I'll make sure to do that. But thanks again, Bryce, man, for jumping on the show. Uh, make sure that uh, you, you know, keep us posted on what you're doing with the work, man. And best of luck to you, bruv. Hey, appreciate it, girls. All right, man. We'll talk. All right. Take care. Peace. Wow. That was great, wasn't it? Very insightful, very thoughtful, just very rich conversation that I had. Um, special shout out to Bryce Henson, man. Um, just a great guy. Thanks for taking the time, Bryce. Um, please share your feedback, your thoughts. Email me, blacktransnational17 at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Instagram, blacktransnational underscore. Please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Really looking forward to hearing your feedback, especially throughout Black History Month. We have so much more to cover. Um, hope you all are enjoying the content. Um, yeah, so that's going to do it. Thank you all again. My name is Dr. Kalechi Bay Lamberts. My Black is transnational. And I hope by the end of this month, yours will be too. Peace and happy Black History Month.